you know, there was no training program. I didn't know what I was talking about. I mean, I literally was hired. I sat down at a desk and they gave me a bunch of cases to handle as a claims handler. Well, I was trained as an attorney. I, I could write the heck out of a brief or a motion or at that point, I mean, I had been an appellate court clerk for so long, I could write an opinion. But I didn't know the difference between a reservation of rights and an acknowledgement letter. And that's fact. Welcome to The Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins, your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of The Defense Never Rests. I'm your host today, of course, Megan Henry, joined by my partner and co-host, Wendy Smith. Hi, Wendy. Hi, Megan. Hi, everybody. So happy to have you on uh, today. We have on a really special guest. We have on Eileen Fay, who is Senior VP and Head of Claims at Berkeley Public Entity. Um, so I wanted to have her on because obviously her, she deals with public entities, which is such a different animal than you know a private corporation or a private individual and how the, the navigating those claims is just different. Um, and Wendy happens to handle a lot of that stuff. So of course, I wanted you to come on, Wendy, to, you know, help guide along this conversation. I was going to say, you could be talking about this for days. This could be a, this could be a series of podcasts, but it is a very interesting area of um, insurance coverage and risk management. Yes. Got some politics going on and everything. So fun stuff. Yeah. So we didn't take a few days. We just took about an hour, but we, we tried, we'll try to pack it in. Um, but with that, let's bring her in. Good morning, Eileen. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Defense Never Rest. I'm so happy to have you. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to have been asked. I appreciate it. And so this morning, uh, Wendy is my partner is also acting as my co-host. I love having Wendy on. Um, but also, you know, for today, I, I, I talked to you a few weeks ago um, and, you know, you work for Berkeley Public Entity and have, you know, obviously you insure public entities and Wendy has, you know, tons and tons of experience, you know, on the comp and liability side defending public entities. So I thought she'd be just a great addition to come into our conversation today. Absolutely. So I'm excited for that. But before we dive into the meat, I really want to get to know you. I like to get to know all my guests um, and, you know, get to know their background and how they ended up where they are today, because everyone's stories are so different mm -hmm. um, and just interesting, too. So, you know, you are an attorney. You went to law school, mm -hmm. um, but I, you never really were in private practice, from what I understand. So why do you go through like your your history of why you became a lawyer and how you ended up where you are today? Sure. Um, so I became, I, I think I always knew I was going to be a lawyer from the time I was about seven years old. I come from a family of lawyers, my mom's family specifically. My grandfather, my maternal grandfather growing up was a homicide judge in Philadelphia. Um, he was an, he, he served in other capacities as well, but I remember homicide because I used to sit in his courtroom and listen to the trials, <laughs> which I was way too young to do, but I did it. <laughs> Um, but that's going to really, be fascinating for a seven-year-old. <laughs> it, it was, it was. And, you know, truthfully, my mom and I love murder mysteries and we always say we could pull off the perfect murder if we had to. Um, so I think that that probably informed all of that as well. Um, and my, let's see, my mom is one of five. Three of those five are lawyers. Wow. And that really just speaks to my grandfather's influence. He was like the prototypical, wonderful patriarch who was calm and patient and funny and had a great Irish wit and could tell a story and he was just really a special guy and um two of his daughters and one of his sons became lawyers one of them being my mom 
And she went to law school starting when I was nine months old. And I am the youngest of three. Um, I have two older brothers. And um, my mom and I also have the same name. I mean, I have a married name now, but I'm Eileen Vogley. She was Eileen Vogley. Um, she is, I should say, Eileen Vogley. <laughs> and um, I, we always tell the story that when she graduated, that she always says, like, I definitely earned that degree with her because I was so little. And um, when they called her name, because I ran up to the stage when they called her name, because in my head, I was like, yeah, it's my name, too. I'll go up yeah. there. And so <laughs> all the pictures of her getting her diploma, or she's holding me, when a sassy oh, four-year-old. Yeah. Um, so I guess, yeah, like I said, I knew since I was seven. So fast forward, you know, all through high school, I, I always said that I was going to be a lawyer. And um, my oldest and no one brother, tried to talk you out of it? Like your grandmother, well, no, not in my family. family. Not in my family. They all wanted. I mean, my mother was like, "Yes, definitely. I want you to be." My mom is a big proponent. She is so excited because my oldest niece is saying that she wants to be a lawyer, and my my mother's like, "Yes, <laughs> next generation." Oh yeah, no. My mom's a big believer in the in the. I mean, she understands that it's changed, and it has changed so much since when her father and even she and her sister and her brother came up, but. Um, she's still uh, a big believer in the legal world and that as a career choice. Um, so yeah, no, no, no one talked, tried to talk me out of it. Um, my oldest brother though, when I, when I was graduating from law school was already a practicing attorney at a big firm. And so was his then girlfriend, now wife. And they were both in partner track working long hours. And I just, I know me and I knew that that was never going to be what I wanted to do. So I clerked for two years for a Superior Court of Pennsylvania judge. And then I did work in private practice for what I describe as a hot minute. I think it was four months. I'm not even joking. I think it was four months. That's a hot minute. Really it was a hot minute. I mean, I was barely there and I was gone. Um, just enough and, to bill a few hours, be like, mm. yeah, yeah. Well, just enough for a partner to sit me down and be like, that motion took you way too long. And I was like, yeah, sorry about that. Um, so I went back to a clerkship and now I was at the crossroads of like, I knew I didn't want to clerk forever. That was not going to be my career choice. So what are you going to do? And we have a family friend who is also a lawyer in Chester County. And I guess my brothers were getting married. Maybe people were having babies. I just kept seeing him at family events over and over and over again. And his daughter, who is an attorney, had become a broker, an insurance broker. And so he was in my ear about insurance. Think about insurance, think about insurance, think about insurance. And I have a very good friend from my high school who is was is an underwriter for what was then Ace, Ace American Insurance Company. So I contacted her and she was like, oh, God, don't go into insurance, Eileen, don't do it. <laughs> she would still say that today. She's very surly. And um, I was I said, well, just 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 float my resume. For me. Do me a favor, just float my resume. And she was like, well. With lawyers, it's either legal department or claims. And I said, um, I said, well, whatever, just float it to HR and see what the, see what's out there. Claims probably sounds like it's a good good fit. She said, okay. And at the time, so then I went through the interview process, and basically it came down to I had an offer from a MedMal uh, insurance defense firm, I had an offer from Ace American, and I had an offer from a consulting company that did business writing and speaking consulting. And they, so three very different very, career paths, yes. very different career paths. And which one are you going to choose? Um, and it's really funny. My mom really wanted me to go with insurance defense. My father 
um, who always thought I had more of a head for business was like, you should go for the consulting. I think you'd be really good at it, this and that. And because every nobody knew anything about insurance in my family, as much yeah. as everybody was a lawyer and, you know, seems like you would be very well versed in it. Not so much. My brother was an employment lawyer. And at this time, there wasn't there wasn't a huge presence of employment um, insurance or EPL insurance. Um, so, so my mom was convinced I would just be handling auto claims at, you know, Geico or Allstate. Um, and really my, my, what I started, I took the job at Ace American, obviously. And what I did for four and a half years, almost exclusively was handle um, sex abuse claims for, <laughs> Um, yeah, I know. Crazy. The Boy Scouts, I handled all sorts of different churches, of course, the Catholic Church, but the Lutheran Church, um, schools across the board, because um, ACE and INA, which was a predecessor company for, uh, for ACE, insured a lot of these organizations for, for the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, which is unfortunately when the abuse was occurring. So I handled huge amounts of litigation out in California. Um, and that was what I did as a claim adjuster when I first started. I mean, in my interview, it was so inappropriate. They asked if I was Catholic and did I like to travel? <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I'm pretty sure you can ask me if I like to travel, but I know you're not allowed to ask me if I'm Catholic. <laughs> but my wow. boss at the time wasn't. And she was like, it would just be really helpful if you understood the whole church hierarchy thing. And I was like, well, I'm your girl. I've gone to nothing but Catholic school. So yeah, so, I, I'm Catholic. <laughs> did you? Did you find it difficult to jump into that straight out? Like, oh, it definitely 100%. takes a good, like I work yeah. in a lot of sexual assault claims and stuff, and it takes mm. a good like mental detachment right? from, yeah. because you can't get emotionally involved. So, I mean, right. that must've been really difficult. It wasn't. And, you know, I think it's for me, it wasn't, I think it would be for a lot of people. Remember I was sitting in the homicide right, courtroom as a child. Um, I only, the only thing I ever knew I, if I was going to do it, the only thing I ever wanted to really be as a lawyer was a prosecutor. But early on in my search, I also knew what I was and who I was. And I knew I could not afford me on a prosecutor's salary. <laughs> and I had to afford me. Like there's yeah. nobody, I was taking care of myself. So, yeah. and that was always my plan. Um, so I kind of had to make that decision. What did you want to do? Do you want to afford your, the lifestyle to which you've become accustomed or did I want to be a prosecutor? And I decided that the lifestyle and, a, and this job, this, this career path was, was a better suit for me. And I do think that it was in the end uh, for a variety of reasons. But um, so for me, the sex abuse stuff, there was one case that was difficult. One, uh, I'm not saying that they were all easy. They're not, they're disturbing. Of course they are. Um, but I would say that there's one case that really got to me. Like I was sitting at my desk reading the deposition, kind of crying. And I just got up and I went into my boss's office and I said, I'm done. I'm done for today. I kind of can't handle this today. And he was like, that's fine. That's not, no problem. <laughs> because it was just day after day after day, you're bombarded with these horrible stories. Um, but I think, you know, for whatever reason, for me, it was a really good fit that I could detach myself and I could um, look at the law. You know, the other thing about this is in an insurance company, when you're dealing with these sex cases, these sex abuse cases, a lot of times you are focusing on coverage and is the entity 
covered. It's not the priest. You're not defending the priest. That's an intentional act. It therefore cannot be insured. So we're, we're not defending the priest. We're defending the entity that the priest and or the Boy Scout leader and or the minister the was associated with. Exactly. So you have to look at that organization and say, you know, did they know? Should they have known? And therefore, is coverage implicated for that? Um, so a heavy focus on coverage for me versus the straight up, these are the terrible facts and this is horrible what happened to this then child, you know? So that was another, uh, that was another way I was able to draw that line of I'm not going to get emotionally invested because I don't even have to think about the facts yet. I'm still focused on whether or not this claim is even covered. That's true. So that was helpful. Yeah. And, and that you're right. That is such a huge component of it. Mm -hmm. And, and I remember from, from the time when I was doing a lot of that work, I just had to find, I just, you had to kind of like, just lift yourself up Mm -hmm. and be like, these are just the facts and I can't get emotionally invested in this. Yes. Like I said, I mean, yeah. I, for whatever reason, I was able to kind of be like, I mean, yeah, I was able to just kind of look at the facts and, and disassociate myself from that and move on and think about the case and how much does it cost. And I guess, truthfully, it's desensitization. How many cases do you handle? I handled hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cases. So after a while, you do become desensitized to it. The best part was when I would have to write these large loss reports. And they would have to go up to, you know, senior leadership, senior management. And I, I would get feedback of like less, less detail. They need a lot less detail. So we literally came up with, you know, a sentence or two that went into almost every single one. Well, the, the abuse was the abuse was, you know, pervasive and lasted a long period of time. And like we would just leave it at that. And then they kind of just got to the point where they trusted me to say, look, this is what that's going to cost. And this is what that's going to cost. And we got to deal with it that way. So it was, it was interesting work. The other thing about going into the insurance world was, you know, there was no training program. I didn't know what I was talking about. I mean, I literally was hired. I sat down at a desk and they gave me a bunch of cases to handle as a claim handler. Well, I was trained as an attorney. I I could write the heck out of a brief or a motion or at that point. I mean, I had been an appellate court clerk for so long. I could write an opinion. But I didn't know the difference between a reservation of rights and an acknowledgement letter. And that's fact. I had a coverage attorney explain it to me over the phone because I was using them interchangeably. <laughs> and she was like, oh, gosh, Eileen, um, I'm just going to please don't take this the wrong way. And I was like, Susan, anything you want to tell me, I will take. I am drowning here. And she was like, OK. And she gave me basically a primer. And, you know, just the basics of what a reservation of rights is, what a declination letter is, what an acknowledgement letter is. I mean, talk about learning. on. I mean, learning on the fly, learning on the job. It was crazy. It was crazy. But, but that's what I so tell. Oh, go ahead. ahead. I was going to say, that's what I tell adjusters, though, all the time. You know, like, you know, when you got the newbie, I'm like, just call me. I'll help right. you. I'll walk you through this. Like, yeah. I know how to do this. I could give you the differentiation. Yeah. That's the services that, you know, you need. And we understand from a lawyer's perspective, especially somebody that's been doing this for a while, we understand that. Yes. As a claims leader at this point, though, I would say if yeah. you're telling that to one of my adjusters, then I have failed them. 
So I'll just be honest with you there. I think that that is very much, if I know I've got a newbie, I got to teach them that stuff. That's yeah. an, that's incumbent upon me as a leader to do that. So I appreciate that, Wendy, and you're right. I think it probably happens more than it should. But, you know, you let me know if it happens with one of my people. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll be like, don't tell anybody. Exactly. But at the time, you must have been so thankful and appreciative for, oh, for that. And especially yeah. it sounds like that individual went about it in the right way. Like, Absolutely. I feel like you could have, there's definitely a wrong approach to that to mm-hmm. someone who could be like, oh, Eileen, you don't know what you're talking about and approach oh, yeah. it in a different way. And she approached it yeah. more of like, okay, like, I know you're new. hundred percent. Let's, let's and, I mean, and, I experienced both. Believe me, I went to a mediation <laughs> out in California and I did. And he was right. I had no business being at that mediation. I did not know what I was talking about. I did not know that case. They threw me to the wolves a hundred percent. I think it, I started November 14th and I think I was there before the end of the year. I mean, I had no business being at a mediation and it's never a good thing when the defense attorney actually apologizes for your presence to the judge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, it was a high, high yeah. moment for me. But that's yeah. not the way to deal with it too. You no, have to it was not. Finesse. Like- <laughs> that's what I'm saying. I had both. Yeah. I had a kind person say, Hey, let me help you out here. You clearly are struggling a bit. And then I had the guy who's like, um, you're an embarrassment and I'm going to go apologize for your presence. No. And I was like, okay, thanks. Thanks so much. I appreciate that. Yeah. And I, bet you, I bet you wanted to use that counsel again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, they're learning experiences. I look at them as growth experiences for me, but yeah, no, his billables for Mace went down tremendously after that. Can- <laughs> <laughs> Um, so you're, you're working at ACE on, you know, the, these sexual abuse type claims that mm-hmm. you eventually transitioned out of that into something new, correct? I did. So, um, you know, after a few years, I kind of raised my hand. I think I had a different manager at this juncture. And I said, I was part of a group that was handling both sex abuse and, um, uh, public entity and straight up GL. And I said, I'd like to handle a little bit more of that. I need more more knowledge across the board it can't just all be sex abuse it sounds great but i mean it's just such a niche that i'd like some some more so he was great and he was very deliberate about giving me other cases i did handle the public entity cases and i handled just like i said some other just straight up regular gl cases our regular insured regular insured you know what i mean property casualty um and then Let's see. God, what did I do next? So then at some point he left. Oh, right. And then I went to, um, uh, I went to our commercial group, our overall, I should say, I was always in the commercial group, but we had this global group really that I went into and I was doing global reporting for all of East American up through executive leadership. So that is where I actually got experience to property and cat. I was doing cat reporting. I was assisting, believe me, by no means was I doing the cat reporting, <laughs> but I, oh, no, you don't want me doing that. Um, but I was writing all the large, like our, our CEO, Evan Greenberg at the time would get a report every single week of every single large loss that was processed within the company. It was a smaller company than it is now. It's now Chubb and it's enormous. Yeah. And I would write the summaries for that every single week for all lines of business. So it was really a great experience because I got to know all lines of business and I got lots of exposure to leadership and everything along those lines. And then they regrouped 
and they tapped me for management, which was my first management role. And I guess that was in um, maybe 2014, 2012. I can't remember exactly. And that is when I then led the public entity group for a small period of time. I also ran what's called what was called the fast track group, which we brought in young people who didn't have any insurance experience. I handled I hired a lot of young lawyers and we would train them up and then they would get promoted up throughout the company. It was supposed to be a pipeline group. Yeah. But that's where I also got my first I I had handled public entity claims as a handler, but now I was managing the public entity group. And um and that was interesting and then things progressed after that we bought chubb i took a professional development job and then after about 15 years at chubb ace um i kind of just decided i was ready to move on i had been ready i think but i wasn't willing to just jump into any position i was very lucky where i was happy where i was but ready at the same time so i waited for the right gig and um and i was lucky recruiting from berkeley called me and said, would I be interested in this job? And the interesting thing is, is that Berkeley Public Entity started as a startup in 2012. And it started as a startup run by a former ACE underwriter. And he had tapped a former ACE claims leader to be the claims people. They had since moved on and there had been new leadership, but I was very well aware of Berkeley Public Entity because one of my mentors had left ACE to go run the claims department and start it. So it was like, oh, sure, okay. <laughs> it was interesting. I mean, have you ever gone to, like when you were talking about taking young lawyers, you know, starting up this like fast track division, uh, do you go to, like, do you find like in your career, you've gone to, you know, like law schools and stuff and like given that option to students? Because I, I was just talking about this to another, uh, person who actually I went to law school but is in claims and I said that's a great talk you know when you're in law school you know you're busy focusing on your education and your classes but it's like and then you know when you get out it's like I need a job and not everybody knows what they want to do they just know that I'm gonna have a student loan and I need to get paid mm-hmm. but now there's there's other options out there such as like you know how you gotten into insurance mm-hmm. so I, I have been asked to um speak at different law schools, not specifically for a recruiting event. I think our recruiters have gone to the law schools now and they've spoken about it because we've asked them to. We've said like, that's that's a fresh ground, go for it. But I've been asked, um, I've, I've spoken to Drexel classes, law classes, and I think Villanova, though I don't recall, I know Temple as well. And that's mainly through connections. So my sister-in-law, um, was an adjunct at Drexel for a number of years. And so she would ask me, <laughs> I would often go into her um, her class and like be a, be a guest, you know, um, witness and I would play a role. Um, she tapped all of us. My mom was her favorite witness to have. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, in, in that, she always asked me to speak about my background and I would always tell, you know, um, that insurance is a really great avenue for, for young lawyers to pursue. Um, and we had a lot of success with the fast track team. I mean, not everybody's still with Ace Chubb, mm-hmm. but most, if not all of them are still in insurance. I've had, I had one who went to a firm. He's doing really, really well at the firm. Um, I had one guy who like completely left and went into the sports management world, which I was like, okay, that's great. 
Um, but a lot of them are working with brokers. They're working with other carriers. Uh, we've had a lot of lot of success. One was just um, she was up for the CLM um, Young Professional of the Year. Yeah. So she unfortunately didn't get it. But yeah, I mean, so we we've had a lot of success um, in doing that. I do think it needs to be more of an outreach within the law schools because I don't think that they're talking about it. It's you know everybody's focused on firms, firms at least at Villanova. You know, oh, firms yeah. came on. It was the it was the firm recruiting in the summertime. Which firm were you getting the the summer with? Um, and then it was if you didn't get it with that first round, then it was the second round and the third round. But it was just firms or clerkships. That's all anybody focused on. I didn't yeah. know a darn thing about insurance, and I really wish I had because if I had, I probably would have done the four year MBA JD program that Villanova has, which yeah. is a great great program i knew somebody in it and i wish i had done it but yeah i i i also went to villanova and i i share that that feeling i remember going into that process and i, I like no like insurance wasn't even muttered it's not mm -mm. like i didn't no. even know I, and I, it's the I, driver I, of almost all litigation like i, I just knew insurance the, these firms do insurance defense i had no idea what that meant at that time I didn't even realize it meant that you rep you would represent like people or businesses. I was just like, oh, you're just defending insurance companies. And I just, <laughs> I had no right. idea in my mind right. what that really meant in reality right. because no one explained it to me. And I didn't have any lawyers in my family either to explain right. it to me either. I had no clue. <laughs> yeah. Well, I had more than enough. I could have loaned some out to you and they weren't, even, <laughs> they did, they didn't know, you know, it just wasn't something because they didn't have any experience with it. Like I said, I'm not joking when I tell you my mother was terrified of me going into insurance. I think she was convinced I was throwing away my entire legal career because I was gonna be handling auto claims for Allstate. And of course I wasn't working for Allstate, but that that's all anybody knew about insurance, I guess is what yeah. I'm saying. So it, it was really that family friend who was like, it's more than that, it's more than that. And he just kept being in my ear and thank God I listened to him. Yeah. And thank, yeah, that's what I was thankful or thank God for that person because, mm -hmm. it, and this is a common theme that it weaves through these podcasts. Whenever I have any, anyone on in insurance and in claims being like, this is such a great field to go into and mm -hmm. grow like yep. the potential, the yeah, career absolutely. advancement potential for if you have a, a law degree or if you don't have a law degree, it, yeah, absolutely. it's not really like much of a ceiling on there no i mean we talk about believe me there are a lot of uh, my assistant vice president of claims it, it does not have a law degree and but she is what we always say she came up through claims right so she handled she was the kid who graduated from college and did work for progressive as a kid and handled those auto claims and then progressed on and on and on and now she knows as much if not more than me about claims and operations and all the sorts of the many aspects of insurance and claims operations that go into things um, that go into handling insurance claims. She doesn't have a law degree. So, but I don't have the background in handling the claims the way she did. I handled, I mean, from go, I handled high um, severity claims. That's what I handled. 
So if you want me to handle a frequency book, you got the wrong girl because I cannot do that. I do not know how to do that. I am never going to be good at it. You know what I mean? It's just not necessarily where my strengths lie. And it's certainly not where my background is. But you need both. You need both in the claims world. You need the people that come up through the ranks and handle the frequency stuff and get used to it so that when they progress and become leaders, they can manage and train those people and they know all the ins and outs of the claims and claims operations and you need the people like me who can handle the severity claims and know the litigation world and can look at policy language and policy coverages and really interpret those because ultimately speaking it's contracts that's what it is it's contracts you're looking at a contract what does what does the contract say what do we cover and then how do we proceed from here or how do you interpret the contract? Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I wish to say that too, but that's one of those things, you know, like, yeah, I mean, you're seeing that now with the COVID claims and stuff like that. Right. People are Absolutely. Doing. Absolutely. But I think that's such a great point, though, about recognizing people's individual strengths and mm-hmm. to build a, a team, a really good mm-hmm. team, balancing out those strengths with, like, balancing it out Absolutely. with different strengths. And I, sometimes I feel that, I think some law firms might be guilty of this, like not having an idea of like, wait, well, we have like, this person's really good at this and that's, that's their strength. And this person's really good at this and that's, and like, when you're defending a case, maybe you you need this person's Mm -hmm. strength and this person's strength, you need both those attorneys on that case. And I think sometimes that whole outlook is sometimes lost. Agreed. Agreed. I, I completely agree. I mean, I specifically recruited her. She worked for me. At, at Chubb and I specifically recruited her because I know she counterbalances my my strengths and my weaknesses. Yeah, and that's that's great. So it's, a, it's so much better for our team. Yeah, because they they they're able to look at both. And then my team, of course, they have their strengths and weaknesses. You know, I have one guy who's totally in the weeds and he loves it and he wants to talk about all the details. And then I have other people who are very esoteric and just want to talk about the policy. Okay. Yeah. So everybody counterbalances and you know which cases to give those people. Exactly. Helps. Um, so public entity claims are obviously a different animal um, mm-hmm. than your, I would say, typical, not typical, but like when you're defending a, a corporation or, oh, there's your dog. Um, yeah. <laughs> there's my guy. Hi. <laughs> I love him. Uh, yeah. He's like, I'm tired of listening to you. I'm walking away. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what would you say, like, are, are some of the the challenges at the outset when, when you have a, a public entity involved in a lawsuit? Um, at the outset, I mean, specific to all public entities, no matter what the type of claim is, is that uh, they have budgetary concerns that sometimes corporations do not. Um, Their handlers can have very small authorities because they have to go to a board in order to get authority. How often does that board meet? Um, Very frequently, public entities are very concerned about any publicity around the case, and therefore they feel it in their best, in their best um, minds to fight that case uh, and fight it to the 10th and nth degree. And whereas we're looking at it from a whole, you know, much larger 10,000 feet view and saying, it's the case to settle. We should just settle this case. 
it's going to cost a lot of money to defend this case. We should settle this case. And they're like, no way, Jose, we're not doing it. We are fighting this to the to the end because this teacher has gone through all the local papers, which we're not in. Do you know what I mean? So I'm not reading that local paper. I'm not a part of that local school board. Yeah. But they are. And this is a huge issue in their community. And therefore, they're not going to lay down on it. Um, almost our entire book is written either on a reinsurance basis. So as a reinsurer, it's very difficult. It really depends on that relationship as to whether or not the reinsured wants to even hear our opinion, because they oftentimes don't have to. Um, or it's written on an SIR basis, which is a self-insured retention, which means that the first amount of money, and they can vary, it can be the 500,000, it can be a million, it can be 30,000, um, it just kind of depends, that the first amount of money is the insured's money. Therefore, they initially control the litigation. Mm-hmm. Um, some insureds really hold that tight, really hold, and they want to hold all the information really, really tight because they don't want it getting out in the public or they just, they want to manage their own claims and they don't really want your opinion at all. So, you know, flow of information is an issue in the public entity sphere. Um, and recognizing whether or not a case really is worth fighting is an issue within the public entity sphere. It can be an issue in the private sphere as well. Don't misunderstand me. Yeah. But I, I do find it far more frequently here in, in the public entity world. And of course, um, all of the political, you know, machinations that go on within the public entities and, and trying to balance that, you know, is the legal department even speaking to the risk managers? <laughs> like, is there that flow of information? I mean, I have, I have, Sometimes not. <laughs> I have cases where they're really, they're really not. Um, absolutely. And you know, I have a lot. I have one example that I'm thinking of right now with a malicious prosecution case. So it's very clear that the risk manager has almost no say in this case whatsoever. It's the legal department and the legal department's like, yeah, we don't really want to get on the phone with you. Um, well, I'm like, well, you're going to have to get on the phone with us and talk to us about the case. And I know that you don't want to hear that, but that's the simple fact of the matter. So um, it, that can be you know, and again, that doesn't, that really doesn't occur in the public and in the public sphere, uh, private company sphere, I excuse me. Um, that really doesn't kind of happen. I mean, the risk management department in a large fortune 500 company is the risk management department in a large fortune 500 company. And they're managing that litigation, whether it's in-house counsel or outside counsel, they, they've got that. Um, that's not always the case with a public entity. Okay. Yeah. Well, and it- when you mentioned the boards, and that's not something I, mm-hmm. I consider in the in the back of my mind, mm-hmm. as how that could probably be such a roadblock to a lot of yeah. things. Yeah, any public expenditure a lot yeah. of times has to be approved. So I've got you know risk management departments where I'll say when we're doing an audit, okay, well what are the authorities? And they'll say like, well my handlers have authority up to five thousand, and I. And they're the risk manager of the entire county, have authority up to 50,000. And anything over 50,000 has to go to the board. Well, my very next question is always, how often does the board meet? Yes. Like, is this going to be an impediment to us settling claims? Because if it, and now in, in this day and age, the good thing is most of the time the answer is we can get an answer really quickly. It can be a Zoom meeting. Sometimes it can just be via email. 
but it can move fast. But back in the day, I mean, that was definitely an issue. I think even yeah, pre-COVID, before everybody got yeah. really comfortable with this form, yeah. um, forum, I should say, um, I think it was definitely far bigger issue than it is now. Now everybody's pretty well schooled in it and they're sort of like, well, we don't even have to meet in person. We can just yeah. handle it this way, um, which does help with the speediness of it, but yes. School boards have to meet um, county boards. If it's a city, you know, a lot of times all of those expenditures have to be have to be approved and budgets definitely become an issue and they'll never tell you that. <laughs> they'll never tell you that. But if they don't have the money, they'll they'll put it off. They'll let the case continue to litigate. Until well, you have to get creative. I've seen things where have you seen things where like sometimes, you know, the case not going to be worth what you're going to pay in litigation but you have to get i've had to get creative with settlements where you don't get all the lump sum up front right i have right. to pay you out because you know right. and and you have to understand that because you have to look at who you sued exactly um we absolutely do that i had a case where um it was very sad uh it was in somewhere in the midwest i can't remember and the police officer had his siren sirens on but not his lights um woman with her son is making a left into a parking lot where there's a fast food store that her daughter's working at and she's picking up the daughter it's nighttime and the cop is coming the opposite direction and he's just going really really fast and he blows the light he, he's responding to a call and she makes the left and he is nowhere he, she just doesn't see him and it's completely legal her turn and really what he's doing because he doesn't have his lights on is illegal, so to speak. He's not following the proper procedures and he is going too fast as he approaches this intersection. And he just T-bones her and he kills both she and her son. And the daughter watches it because she comes out, she hears it and she comes right out and she's right on the scene. Um, so it's an incredibly sad case. Well, the county did not have, they had a, a significant SIR and they did not have the money for it at all to pay. And it is it's a clear cut case. It's not a case you're going to litigate. We try to move it to settlement as quickly as possible. And um, plaintiff's counsel was really good in the sense of he knew exactly who he sued. He knew who he was dealing with, to your point, Wendy. And he was okay with the fact that the county was going to have to issue a bond and raise that money through a bond procedure that was going to take a minute. I mean, this was not going to be something where you got your settlement immediately. Um, so that was the agreement. And we had a very detailed agreement as to because our SI, our money doesn't come into play until the SIR is paid. Right. So we had a very detailed agreement as to when we would be paying when they would be paying when they had to issue the bond all all of it. Um, but that was a really well, well prepared, well versed plaintiff's attorney we were working with. So it made it an okay procedure if it you know if you have somebody who's not well versed or well schooled in that it can be really difficult because you have to educate them and they don't want to hear that for a long time until finally oftentimes it takes a judge kind of yelling at them <laughs> to understand it <laughs> unfortunately a lot of times it takes a judge yelling at yeah, someone for that exactly exactly something. that does happen that does happen have you ever had issues with the uh, collective bargaining agreements also being pulled into that in certain cases. Yeah, I haven't yet. 
I'm sure that that will become an issue at some point, but I have not seen that in, in so far at, at a BPE or that I recall even at East. Um, so I'm sure it will. Yeah, I've run into it's a lot of it comes from the comp end. I've had to deal with on the GL end, and then I have a very nuanced one that I just got out of Delaware uh, Court of Common Pleas, but. It, it affects other acts within the state, how you litigate, but it really is people don't, I don't think people teach you this, like even in practice until you do certain types of these cases where like, yeah, you, you have to remember who you sued, but also there's a, the, depending on the entity, you might have a collective bargaining agreement that you right. have to deal with and have to read it. And people right. don't understand that. No, no, they do not. They also don't understand tort caps. They don't yeah. want to hear about it. They don't want to hear about um, governmental immunities. They yeah. <laughs> a lot of times. And again, it all depends on the plaintiff's counsel. There are some that are extremely well versed, and that you'll get, you know, you'll get a complaint that you're like, "Wow, they knew all about it and fled around it. Good for them." <laughs> um, yeah. And then, and then there's times when somebody runs into it, and they're like, "What are you talking about?" And you just have to say to them, "Well, there is a liability cap here, so the most you can ever get is this, and we're willing to give it to you now." How do you like that? Yeah. And, you know, they get a little angry. Yeah. Although they should be getting pretty happy. Very, I mean, unhappy that there's a cap, but then very, not very often do you get money right off the bat. So. Right. Right. <laughs> I mean, again, those are those clear liability yes, cases that are easy. So, it, it, and you had mentioned politics and I, I wasn't going to let this podcast go without talking about politics because, I mean, obviously with public entities, Politics, I think, probably go hand in hand, mm -hmm. um, but it must take a certain amount of finesse on your side and your team mm -hmm. side to try to navigate those yes. those waters. So yeah, we and we not call to upset anybody management. either. You know. Yes. No, you're right. We call that influence management within our our world. We talk about it a lot because we can't necessarily we can't change any of that. We're very beholden to dealing with what's going on in the local community. And it can be very, very frustrating. Um, in Louisiana, we, we have a lot of insurers in Louisiana and Berkeley Public Entity, um, less than we did before, but we still have a significant book there. And Louisiana politics are an animal unto themselves. Um, it can be very, very interesting. And, you know, who who your mayor is, is the defendant the next day and vice versa. It, it's crazy. And they're pulling the strings and they're saying, you know, no, you have to defend me under the public officials. And you're looking at this and you're like, but you're the one that decided all what, what? I don't understand what's going on here. You're, you're the one who's accused of all of this. Um, yeah. And it can be, it, it it's very multi-layered. So the politics of it all. And, and a lot of times you're just, you have to wait. In public entity, so often we're we're just in a waiting game to see when the next board will be elected. We can't we can't settle this case because they're in elections right now, and therefore we have to wait until those elections are done. And we should hope that it goes this way because these people feel this way about a case. But if this person wins, then we'll be able to to get a, a quick resolution. Um, and it goes on and on and on. So there are a lot of machinations, and a lot of times we don't know about those until you get into the case and then yeah. well, and then your defense counsel basically has to explain it to you because they're the boots on the ground. Yeah. They're the people that are handling the day to day. They're reading the local paper. 
you know, we can understand some of the stuff that, that you may hear about on a national level, but we don't do many major cities. So it's a lot of local municipalities that we have to hear about from our defense council. And that's, that's who we rely on for that information. And I will say this from a defense council standpoint, though, I think this is important to know. Sometimes we're the middleman. Well, actually, a lot of times I'm yeah. we're the middleman on um, what the carrier needs to do. The mm-hmm. finessing around the, the political entities. And I mean, it doesn't have to go as high as the mayor's office could be like your local county board. That's why I said I've sometimes run into issues where I've had to say, you have to look at your collective bargaining agreement, your collective bargaining agreement. I know people have looked at it, but um, that's illegal. What you have in there <laughs> is illegal. Like it doesn't, these two, these don't jive. And that you could be faced with a lot more, um, paying out a lot more money at the end if you don't mm-hmm. if you don't do that. But it, there's so many components that go into it. And oftentimes, like I said, I have to be the middleman in between. Um, and, uh, and, and the politics aren't just about, you know, actual politics. It can be that that the sheriff was a really great guy that everybody really loved. And he just had this little nasty habit of sexually harassing all of the DAs who worked on his cases. It was just super inconvenient that he would, that he did that, but it was it was him, and everybody knew it. So he's just such a good guy; it's no big deal. And we're going to defend the hell out of these cases as a result of it. Meanwhile, we're looking at a string of female DAs who are like, "Hey, it was not okay. I felt very uncomfortable. I left my job as a result of it." And we we have to look at a risk management group who are county employees as well who want to protect this man's reputation. He is now retired and he is special to them. And he is somebody who's been in the community for a long time. And if we start settling these cases, then as far as they're concerned, we're, we're stomping on his reputation and, and his legacy and manage that. Do you think, (laughs) do you think that's what's do you think that what's happened in New York, you know, you look at like with Andrew Cuomo and all this, mm. the media publicity that's coming out, the Me Too movement, which mm. Megan already knows I do training. I do sexual harassment training. I do EPL. I do employee law. And it's like, that's changing the tide on that a little bit. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, yeah, you don't was... want to. He's a good guy, but you get wind of that. You don't want that coming out. So that person is not going to get reelected. And we would agree with you, except that they're not on the East Coast. They're in the middle of the country and they feel very differently about it. Um, And they're a very small town and it's taken a lot. It's taken a lot. And and I'm I'm not going to go into all of the idiosyncrasies. They are still a Karen insured, but it's taken a, a lot to get to the place where everyone's comfortable with settling the case. And, and and being done with it and not making a statement about his reputation, so to speak. Yeah. Um, I mean, we have, I'm trying to think of some other situations that I have. Um, nothing's coming to mind right now, but I'm sure I've well, got them. <laughs> you know, and that's what I was going, going to follow up with is that, you know, you don't know, like, just like you said, you don't know the specific politics that might be affecting mm-hmm. this insured beforehand until there there is a case. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's why I think for those types of things, you probably are really looking for local counsel, not just like counsel that has an an office 
mm-hmm. somewhere nearby, but local council who really can understand what's going on locally. Absolutely. A hundred percent, not to mention that know the judiciary and how, how do they lean and who are we before and how do they view the police and how do they view the sheriff's office and how do they view all the various different things. I mean, law enforcement is obviously huge for public entities right now. Um, dealing with with all the false arrests, the excessive force cases. And there can be um, a lot of closed ranks around those cases. And working with the, the right defense counsel who can help us navigate that and, and, um, and navigate the judiciary and how they're going to interpret those cases is key. And you're right, it's local council. I mean, you can go a little broader with coverage council, mm-hmm. but you kind of have to narrow it down with when you're talking about actual defense council, particularly in certain jurisdictions. You know, Louisiana, for example, you're not bringing in anybody that's outside of that parish. That's just nonsense. <laughs> I mean, no, it's not going to work. So, you know, you have to be very aware of that. And particularly when you you bring up the excessive force type cases, like I think there's such divergent points of view on that Mm -hmm. issue, depending on where you might be politically on the spectrum and also where Mm -hmm. you might physically stand. And that has to be a very difficult water to tread. Yes, it is. It is something that seems very clear to us, um, to my handler, to me, uh, to our insureds. It might not be, and it, it takes us and it takes defense counsel um, really asking probing questions and trying to bring to light how a jury is going to view this, what will be admitted and what won't be, um, so that they can see it from the point of view of, of a jury. There's some insureds who are very in tune with it, and they get it, and they're fine with Yep, this is a bad case. It's not a great one. We don't we don't really think a cop did anything bad, but it's not going to look great. So let's move forward with trying to settle it. Or sometimes they they'll admit, yeah, it was a bad cop, bad apple. We we yeah. had somebody who didn't do the right thing. And then there's times when you get a case and it sounds really awful, and then you get the body cam footage, and it's really helpful and it really clarifies what's happening in that situation, and you can say, okay we're with you. We're going to defend, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to help and we're going to defend this case. Um, And that's really our role. I mean, we're, we're not, oh, we don't ever want to be adverse to our insureds. What we try to do is help them see it from a point of view that's not so personal to them. And if we can do that successfully, then we've been we've been successful as a public entity insurer because that that's really what we're trying to do. We absolutely believe in their mission and their mission is public service. And whether that's as a police officer or in the parks and rec or anything along those lines, we're with them a hundred percent. We're just also, you know, some extent experts in the legal field and we're trying to help them see it from, from the point of view, unfortunately, that a jury will. Now, one thing I'm curious about, um, because in this COVID world, throughout the country, there's such varying views on masks and mask mandates and COVID protocols. Mm-hmm. So uh, from the public entity 
aspect, like you must, I, I, I'm presuming that you're seeing some claims related to that about different mandates that different entities have um, and people, whether or not against mask mandates or for mask mandates or for vaccination or against ma- right. vaccination. I'm, I'm sure you're seeing some of those issues pop up. We are. We are starting to see them. Um, they really, I mean, ultimately speaking, that's a straight up, we're going to defend that claim for them. Uh, they're defending it though now, you know, none, none of the, none of those claims are anything that anybody's going to settle first off. That's a claim that will be litigated if it if it succeeds beyond the initial motions that will inevitably take place mm-hmm. but we also in those instances we have to look to coverage mm-hmm. and was it a public official who decided it you know if it's governor wolf in pennsylvania for example well we do not insure the state of pennsylvania so if they want to if they want to sue an individual um school district well that's very difficult because the mandate was given down by the governor so it's a difficult but in other states where it is perhaps done by a specific school board, a specific school district, then yeah, those cases are are in litigation. They're really in motion practice, frankly. It's yeah. not a ton of litigation right now. So ultimately speaking, will it pierce the SIR? Unclear. Yeah. We, you know, we're in we're looking at them, they're getting the right people involved. But it, it hasn't become an enormous issue yet for Berkeley Public Entity, though it's there for our insureds and we're watching it with them as they manage that litigation process. We'll see where it goes. I mean, most of the judges seem to be agreeing with the mask mandates. So it's been, while it's an issue, it hasn't become an enormous litigation issue for us where it's turned into something because most of the time the judges are just upholding the mask mandates and moving yeah. on. If it's coming from the, the states, coming from the governor, you know, we just, I just was listening to KYW on the way into work today, you know, and uh, Governor Murphy in New Jersey is going to set forth specific guidelines on, you know, vaccinations and give more and give more clarification for his state. So I think right. that's really where that would come from. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, Whoever insures the state of New Jersey, I'm sure has a large lawsuit on their hands. <laughs> we're, we're not, we're not in that situation right now. That's a different podcast. <laughs> IEP cases are blowing up all over for all the uh, school districts. Uh, and it's a failure to educate. Yeah. They're failure to educate IEP cases. You know, you um, violated the IEP because it required in person and you did not, um, you did not, you know, provide in-person uh, care or guidance, I should say, um, instruction for the students. Now, they'll be very individual. It'll be interesting mm-hmm. because ultimately speaking, when school districts went back, were up to the school districts, at least in our state, they were. Yeah. You know, Radnor went back at a different time than Kennett did, then a different time than the city of Philadelphia did, then a different time, then so on and so on and so on. So um, that sh- those cases, we will have to take a harder look at and see um, what occurred when decisions were made. And again, look at the public officials coverage and make sure that, you know, was there even a wrongful act under the policy? Is yeah. this covered? So you have to look at all of that. Yeah, we had interesting scenarios in our school district. Um, and I'm looking at it from a parent level. Sure. 
too. Yeah. But, you know, when you see the classrooms get closed because there's X amount of kids in the class that have contacted COVID, so they need to mm. close the whole class. But then there's a number of kids who have IEPs in the class. So those kids are still were exposed, but for the IEP, mm-hmm. they're, they're permitted to be in school every mm-hmm. day. Um, so then it, it just creates this issue like, well, but they were still exposed yep. and then they're in the classroom with their, their right. teacher or their, you know, some of them might have a special IEP teacher or an aide or whatever that is. So I just think it's, um, it's muddy waters and it's just, mm-hmm. it's gray. It's not, it's just not right. so easy to navigate. No, and- I, I agree. This is also so unprecedented too. Like the, this right. is not when they were designing these IEPs, they weren't expecting that we'd have mass closures of schools for exactly. extended periods of time. So it just wasn't anticipated. I know, which is why I always find it so interesting that parents decide to file suit. Oh, the answer then is litigation. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously that will fix everything. And <laughs> And your student will be back in and all will go well. I just say, I'm yeah. always like, hmm, okay, that's the answer. Good luck. Let's see yeah. how it goes. And I, and I feel for the parent in that situation too, because obviously you want the best for your kid. You want them to have the, the education plan that was designed for, for them. So right. I understand the frustration. Um, yeah. But again, when you step back a little bit or step up a little bit and look at it, you're like, well, okay. But like right. the, the overarching scenario make is making that perfect plan difficult and look it's not right. perfect for anybody like was it ideal for my children to re- work no. re- or learn remotely for a year absolutely not that, you know it was not, not ideal it, was, for it wasn't anybody. for anybody i don't think i don't think anybody's gonna and i could be wrong i haven't seen a case sustained for anything beyond motion practice for the march for the initial 2020 full year it's really when we get into the fall of 2020, sorry, I should say the spring 2020, um, when we get into the fall of 2020 and then the spring of 2021, that is where I think the cases have some juice, they have some legs and, and we're seeing whether or not, you know, cases could go forward for, the, for those reasons, you know, was it equitable? You know, did they discriminate in any way? Were the IEP kids, um, were they discriminated against because they were not in person? Were they dis- were the other kids who were sent home discriminated against because the IEP kids could be in all, all the time? Um, and then, of course, the masks issue. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's uncharted waters for all of us. And we're just moving forward with the litigation as, as we can. Like I said, so far, we haven't yeah. seen any hit us. We're just um, monitoring it, yeah. And what's the which we do risk? a lot of because they're SIRs. So we do a lot of monitoring within above that SIR. We do a lot of monitoring of the case to see is it going to hit us? Do we think that they're doing the right or the wrong thing? And can we jump in here and maybe offer an opinion? And like I said, certain shorts are happy to hear that, and others don't want to hear from you at all. <laughs> I think from the risk standpoint, though, it's also hard too because what's the quantitative damage? Like, how do you you know, if you get past, there's coverage. If you get past, there's, you know, past motions and you're looking, okay, well, you have an SIR go, is going to go beyond that. What is the quantitative damage? You right. know what I mean? Right. What it's can you there. say is the value of four months worth of in-person education for that particular IEP kit? That would be, it's a difficult one. There's no Very question good. about it. And, and, you know, if they have any hard costs that goes to it, but the rest of it is, is, 
plaintiff's counsel, defense counsel coming up with numbers. <laughs> right. I mean, honestly. Yeah. yeah. And difficult because, numbers, you know. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because, I mean, these kids aren't, for the mo- they're not at an age where you can be like, well, you impacted their career. They're in fourth grade. No, I didn't. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but you wanted to be a lawyer at seven, you know. I, mean, I did. I did. Had... But I'm pretty sure my Go fourth ahead. grade year would not have impacted that. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> well, I you know I sometimes have to find myself, remind myself that when I get like, like bent out of shape about like my kids' grades or, or scores on tests, I'm like, literally no other person is going to see this report card except me. Right. <laughs> it's hard keeping it in perspective is very difficult believe me yeah I'm sure for every parent yeah um and you also like you want to instill on them that you you need to work hard you need to try harder but like Mm -hmm. the score isn't that like the end all but you need to put in the right steps to do your best yes I remember when my youngest stepdaughter was in eighth grade and she was going from her district's middle school to the district's high school um, her father was talking to her, my husband, about her grades. <laughs> she just looked at him. She was like, what does it matter? It's not like I didn't get into the high school. <laughs> I was like, he was like, that is not the point. <laughs> it's not what I am talking about. And it is so true because it's like she's sitting there and she's like, seriously, I, I got in. I'm going. What is the big deal? So trying. Yeah having that argument of like no 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 you really need to pay attention to these grades it can be difficult yeah i i remember like i think it was during like this homeschooling nonsense that we had to do and like my my daughter was whizzing through something and getting every a bunch of things wrong and i was like well you got these questions wrong she's like well i was close i was like well it's math like it close <laughs> <laughs> close is still wrong like, yeah you know? <laughs> yeah yeah believe me yeah i one morning my my uh she so the same stepdaughter she was I guess now it's her was it her sophomore year of high school freshman I don't even remember I'm like COVID what was it I don't remember and their first their first class is band and the middle and the youngest are where they were both in band and they're both upstairs in their own rooms and I hear her first in the bathroom and the class is going on on zoom you know it, it's happening in her room and I was like what she's in the bathroom and then all of a sudden I go downstairs and she comes downstairs and she's getting some breakfast for herself and I was like are you not in band class right now and she's like oh yeah yeah." but Mr. Romano said it's fine because if um if we've practiced all week then we don't have to necessarily like participate in practice in class while while the class is going on and I just looked at her and I was like well you've been here for 10 days and I have yet to hear that French one (laughs) So I'm pretty sure you haven't practiced all week. Get your butt back upstairs. And she was like, oh, all right. <laughs> off she went. And I was like, oh, the joys of homeschooling. <laughs> you can even get called out by your mean stepmother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Things I don't miss is that. <laughs> yeah, no, nor do I. They Everybody need to be back in school as quickly as possible. No question about it. Um, so we're just about out of time, but I, I wanted to, to ask you, ask you this. And I know that, you know, you said you, you know, when you were seven, you already knew that you wanted to be a lawyer, but if you were to like, look back on your, your career path now, um, you know, one, would you do it again this way? And two, what piece of advice would you give to your younger self? 
Oh, um, piece of advice. I probably would say get the MBA. Um, truthfully, even when I was at ACE an ACE, ACE paid, would have paid for it. So I had applied to both Villanova and St. Joe's. St. Joe's is my undergrad alma mater. Villanova is my law school. I'd applied to both of their MBA programs and I got, you know, got into both and ultimately decided not to go. Well, ACE would have paid for it. And I stayed for like 15 years. So there's no way I would, I I I spent plenty of time at the company. I would never have had to pay them back or anything along those lines. So I wish I had done that so I had a better grasp, particularly in insurance claims and now being a leader of the claims department, I wish I had a better grasp of the business side of life. You know, just the business side of life. I mean, I know the MBA wasn't going to focus on insurance, but I think that that would have been helpful because I've had to rely on others and self-teach a lot, you know. Um, So that's, I would definitely say that if you're going to go into the business world, even if you're in claims and on the legal side, if you have that opportunity, I would definitely get get that MBA, work on that. Um, or I would go become Sid Mark and play Sinatra music on Fridays with Frank and Sundays with Sinatra all the time because that's my dream job. I would really love it. And one, my best friend lives next door to Sid Mark and I cannot believe that. I'm, I can't go fangirl him because he's older now and that's inappropriate, but I would really love to. She hasn't made the introduction for you? Um, well, again, he's older and we're trying to be respectful. <laughs> As you're peeking over his fence. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Believe me. Yeah. It's just me, Eileen. Just yeah. want to. Exactly. Hi. I just want to be you. He would be like, seriously, get out of here, kid. Are, um, are you musically inclined? Um, no. I mean, oh. I can sing a little bit, but I can't really play any instruments or anything like that. But um, I just love Sinatra. And that would just be, can you imagine? I. For me, at least, I can't imagine making a career out of just playing his music all the time. It would be so great. Yeah. Uh, plus radio. I think radio is great. I like radio. So. Yeah. That's it. I, I am not. Um, what was the other question? Yeah. What, what else would I do? I forget. Oh, would you, I don't remember. Would you um, do it the same? Would I change? Would you, yeah, would you would change I do change? the same? I would do the same. I would. I would. It's been a great career path for me. Like, I didn't get married until I was 44 years old. So it was exactly what I knew I was needed. I need, I, I, I just always kind of had a feeling I wasn't going to get married young. I don't know why I just sort of did. And I knew I wanted to take care of myself and I knew I wanted to do it in a manner that I wanted to do it in, which, you know, wasn't necessarily, um, I wanted to own my own home. I wanted to have a car, you know, I, I wanted some of these things I wanted to, uh, to establish myself. And it's been a phenomenal career path for me. And insurance is a great place for women. It's a great place for women lawyers. They really appreciate us. There is a nice work-life balance. It's why a lot of female lawyers do go into uh, the insurance world. Um, so for me, it's, I would give it nothing but thumbs up. It's been really wonderful to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you you coming on and, and sharing your your journey and then you know sharing with us about um, how public entities are uh, an animal of their own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> thank you for having me. Oh, I, I love it and thank you so much for coming on and Wendy, thank you for for coming on as well. I I always kind of rope Wendy into these. I'm like, Wendy, I have another one. Come on. <laughs> oh, I'm glad, and we're going to sign you up. We're going to do this Peloton, you know, yes. podcast. Oh, let's do it. I'm in. Yeah. 
Yes. So yeah, for any of our our listeners, you didn't hear that for like 20 minutes in our pre podcast chat, we probably talked all about the Peloton the whole time. So we're, we almost just, we almost changed this podcast into just talking about um, that, but we decided we'll save it for another time. And since we already this serious one for today, (laughs) the Peloton tribe um, (laughs) podcast, I can't wait for it. Yeah. Well, we'll have to exchange a leaderboard names after <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm not saying it on this <laughs> me either <laughs> me either but for all our our listeners um and viewers thanks so much for your support if you like what you hear please remember to like and subscribe to the podcast uh the defense of arrest on apple podcasts and you can find the podcast on the legal Nav- legal navigator on youtube